Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation, studying Revelation on Sunday morning, chapter 8, while we're finding our way there. Just a reminder that on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, studying the book of uh, Zechariah presently, and looked at uh, study chapters 4, 5, and 6 this evening if you want to read ahead. 6 o'clock, and each of you are invited. Another chance to study the Word and uh, to worship the Lord. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, the Apostle John <clears throat> writing, And when he, that is Jesus, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. And he was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel, trump, the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. And then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, and uh, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels which are about to sound. In other words, when you think it can't get any worse than what we just read, it gets a lot worse, and um, uh, unfortunately. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and I can't ever turn to it almost without the consciousness that this is going to outlive the heavens and the earth. This is something to found our, our lives and our eternities upon. We've seen it uh, have the final say and the final voice and, and anything that your word is applied to. And uh, so we're thankful to study it, something that is sure, something that is unchanging, something that is sane, something that is wise and good and pure. We're grateful for it. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us about yourself, about your nature, your ways, and that you would take the truth and all of the reasons that you put this chapter 8 in your book, Lord, and that you would use it to enlarge our understanding of you, of your ways, cause us to 
uh, be in awe of you even more and love you even more as a result. We pray for this work of your Holy Spirit that only you can provide, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember as we studied in chapter 6 that the seven-year tribulation period begins with Jesus' breaking of the first of the seven seals on uh, a scroll in heaven. And the scroll represents the uh, title deed to the earth, and the breaking of the seals describes the means by which uh, God is going to uh, take possession of this world, Jesus take possession of this world, a world that he has already purchased 2,000 years ago in his death, burial, and resurrection. So he's purchased it. This is the means by which he takes possession uh, of it. And we remember that this judgment described here in chapters 6 through 19 is not judgment for the sake of judgment. It isn't just God upset and uh, uh, doing things willy-nilly here and, and pouring out whatever comes to his mind. What we have here is a, a, a description of the divine judgment that will be required of God in order to bring an end to Satan's dominion upon the earth, to bring an end to man's rebellion against God upon the, uh, the earth, and, and uh, to establish God's dominion so that all of the beauty then of chapters 20 through 22 can enter in and become a part of man's history. The second coming of Jesus Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and, and then ultimately all of this fallenness given, giving way to a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness and only righteousness uh, dwells. Remember that while 6 through 19 here represents the wrath of God, the book of Revelation does not end with chapter 19. It ends at chapter 22. All that we read in 6 through 19 is the means to an end, the means to a very, very uh, good end. And I think that a lot of times people read the book of Revelation and they look at it and they just think, it's all judgment. It's all where God hammers everybody and hammers the world related to it as if that's all that the book is about. It isn't even remotely what it is a, a, a about uh, uh, supremely. We noticed in the parentheses that uh, constitutes chapter 7 that the gospel is going to be universally preached during the uh, tribulation period, that a great multitude that no one can number is going to become saved during the tribulation. They were, are uh, uh, fondly and affectionately known as uh, uh, tribulation saints. It is clear, though, that there'll be a far greater number of people on the earth that will continue to refuse to accept the gospel, no matter how much judgment gets poured out uh, upon them, and a far larger number than get saved by virtue of the fact that they are able to take captive any and all Christians, and not only take them captive, but also then uh, murder them uh, for simply being Christians and, and not denying Christ in the, what is the evil of the great tribulation period. Chapter 6 uh, recorded the uh, the uh, results of Jesus' breaking of the six of the seven seals. And so when we come here now to uh, chapter 8, verse 1, we have his breaking of the final seal, the seventh uh, uh, seal. 
And this seal then releases a series of seven uh, trumpet judgments, which then releases a series of seven uh, bowl judgments. And, and it can be very easy, I think, to look at the uh, book of Revelation and say it's a series of kind of three independent series of judgments. You've got the seal judgments, you've got the trumpet judgments, you've got the bowl uh, uh, judgments that really don't have any kind of relationship to one another. They're just kind of what, what uh, God uh, does here. But the fact of the matter is, is that both the trumpet judgments that we're going into today and the bowl judgments, uh, they uh, are the result of the seventh seal and, uh, and uh, that, it, that is being broken here. So they're a part of the seven uh, seal uh, judgments. They don't follow the seventh seal. They are the seventh seal. And the reason that, that, I, that I make a point of that is so that we realize that as we move into now the trumpet judgments, as we head into then the bold judgments, that we realize it is the same goal that God has to bring the world to repentance and to trust in His Son. It's the same goal as God's goal in, in the uh, unleashing of the, uh, the, the seal uh, judgments. Also, I think that in order to make uh, any kind of sense out of chapters 8 and 9, we need to remember uh, the reaction of the population of the world following Jesus's breaking of the six seals. There was no humility, no brokenness, no godly sorrow, no repentance, no turning back uh, uh, to, to God. And thus going forward into the trumpet judgments, we see a difference between these trumpet judgments and the first six seal judgments, in that the trumpet judgments represent an escalation at this point of the judgment on God's part. And so their response here uh, to God will be essentially, uh, after the six seal judgments, is that all you've got? Uh, if, you think that, if you think that that's going to uh, leverage us or crowbar us away from our sin uh, that we want to practice and bring us into submission uh, to you in any kind of a way uh, and end our rebellion against you on a world that we believe belongs to us and does not belong to you, then you've got another thing uh, uh, coming. Now, because neither mankind as a whole or any individual human being has any chance of winning a war against God. Uh, the solution to any conflict with God on any level is repentance and surrender. Uh, you would never, if you're in a war with God, if we have any sense at all, uh, we would never enter into a war with God, and then we would never escalate that war. And it would be a folly to go to war with God, escalate that war, and somehow think in escalating it, I now have uh, some chance of winning that war uh, with, with God. In other words, in terms of the condition of the world, if the first six seals of that judgment has just devastated the world, 
if it has shown man individually and collectively to be powerless against the God that unleashes those judgments, then how in the world would I, could I ever think that I would have a hope of victory if I force God now to escalate His judgments in the form of the trumpet judgments and then the bold uh, judgments as a demonstration of the fact that He has greater authority and, and power over uh, than me or over us. And yet, that is exactly what they uh, will do. And so we see here in chapter 8, we uh, will now uh, witness the folly of fighting against God and then somehow convincing ourselves that we can win in that uh, fight. There's a couple of sayings that come to mind in this regard. Uh, a famous uh, literary uh, figure in American history wrote, the dice of God are always loaded. And that means you have no chance of winning in a fight with God, not even a card game with God. Uh, a, a preacher, famous preacher alive today, uh, he, he put it this way, I like it very much. He said, if God is your problem, then only God is your solution. And that's very, very good as well. Uh, Isaiah, he puts it very well, as you might imagine. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 9, uh, he declares, woe to him who quarrels with his maker. I mean, the folly of me picking a fight with the one that has made me, that is with God. Uh, the Creator is always greater than the creation. The creation has no chance of defeating its Creator. And, and then Isaiah goes on to describe uh, us and what we are uh, in, in a fight with God. Woe to him who quarrels with his Maker, a worthless piece of broken pottery among other broken pieces equally worthless, describing mankind. I don't know what that does for your self-esteem, but it seems very, very accurate to me in knowing myself and, and, uh, and my little bit of assessment of, of the world in terms of my own history with it. There is the reminder He is our Maker. How can I ever think I can win in anything against my Maker? Now, you notice in verse 1 that upon the opening of the seal, uh, there's going to be silence in heaven for about half an hour. And so this has caused some theologians to conjecture uh, and, and postulate that there will be no women in heaven. Listen. I don't agree with it. I'm just telling you what's going on out there. I asked Karen if I should mention it, and she didn't answer me. She hasn't talked to me for three days. But of course, the women, they have plenty out of the revelation to do their own thing. As God, you know, in heaven, there's not going to be any sorrow, so there must not, there's not going to be any men there. And then you get the men and the women, they both can come together and say, it surely must mean there are no preachers there. And so, I'm glad you didn't lose your sense of humor. There's Will Smith in the audience here. It's a crazy, woke, ridiculous world. We've got to be able to laugh at ourselves a little bit. But what we have here in this silence is the proverbial 
uh, lull or quiet before the storm. And as the breaking of the seventh seal introduces now a, a new phase, a sobering phase of God's judgment. So we remember what's going on in heaven at this time and the sheer number of people and angels that are in heaven. There are the 12 elders that are present, the four living creatures. There are every single Old Testament and New Testament saint prior to the rapture is in heaven. Every single person that died before the rapture, every Christian that's gone into heaven will go into heaven as a result of the rapture. Um, every single uh, saint, tribulation saint that gets saved out of the tribulation period will be there, and, they, and that number will be innumerable. And then there will also be uh, angels there the, by the hundreds of millions plus, as, as the Bible describes the sheer number. So immediately around the throne of God, you are going to have people and angels that go out for miles in all directions. And something happens in heaven that silences every single one of them uniformly. And it isn't that God says, now listen, at 9.15 in the morning, on this day, we're all going to be quiet for half an hour, and everybody's struggling to stay quiet. That's not what is happening here. There is a spiritual atmosphere in heaven, a sobriety, an awesomeness in heaven related to now the unleashing of this trumpet uh, judgments that causes everyone to just go dead quiet. Nobody will want to in any way break that silence of just the awesomeness of heaven, the awesomeness of God, and the awesomeness of the judgment that is going to come next. You notice, too, that even all of the verbal worship and praise that characterizes heaven being lifted up to God, all of that is brought to a halt during that half hour. And it isn't because God isn't worthy during that half hour of all of that worship and praise being directed to Him, but I'm inclined to believe that this silence communicates, among other things, that while He is unapologetically holy and righteous and true, that He takes no pleasure in the judgment he is being forced to meet out here. Yes, he will do it, and he could not be holy, he could not be righteous as God if he did not do it, but how much more he would rather save and forgive mankind in their repentance as opposed to judging them. And there are many verses in the Bible that speak to this. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. And say to them, the Lord declared to Ezekiel, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? That, that is the heart of God coming powerfully through a plea to a wicked people. Isaiah calls God's judgment his strange work. 
It isn't that he doesn't do it, and he won't do it. He needs to. Uh, But it is his strange work. It is not his preferred work. Of course, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. The very next verse begins with the word but. And then in that following verse is a description of the judgment of the tribulation period. In other words, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance, but He will do it. He must do it. He takes no pleasure in it. He'd rather save people. He'd rather restore people. But he will judge if he is forced to do so. And then in verses 2 through 6, we see uh, this speaking about uh, prayer as it's brought uh, before us. In verse 2, again, consistent with the sobriety of the environment and, and of the scene, seven angels are given seven trumpets. These are not the shofars, the ram's horns that are uh, in use related to Jewish religious worship in the Old Testament. These are metal horns. Uh, with a, a mouthpiece on one end, a flared uh, 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 end at the other end of it. And in the Old Testament times, they didn't have valves on their trumpets like we do today in order to modulate sound and, and to make music and that kind of thing. The primary use of a trumpet was to gain the attention of the multitude in order to then pronounce something to them that is very, very important for them Uh, to hear about what is about to transpire. And then another angel, while all of this is going out, the horns are being, trumpets are being handed out. In verse 3, another angel came to the altar in heaven, and he stood there with a golden censer. In the Old Testament, related to the worship of of the Lord at the tabernacle and at the temple, and remember, we use the Old Testament to interpret the book of Revelation— a, a censer was essentially a fire pan for moving coals from one place uh, to another. And so the priest would take the hot coals from uh, the sacred fire of, of the, the brazen altar at the temple. They would put those, uh, those coals into a golden censer. They would then carry that, those coals into the holy place uh, of the temple. Another priest would meet them at at the the altar of incense in the holy place carrying incense. And uh, and when they both reached the altar of incense, the incense would be poured out upon the coals. There would be this beautiful fragrance that would lift up inside of of the temple, and it all represented what uh, prayer represent, uh, how our prayers uh, affect uh, uh, heaven, how our prayers, the blessing that our prayers are to God, the fragrance that our prayers uh, are to God. So he said, well, my prayers, I stumble them out, and I don't know how fragrant they are. Take God's word for it. That's how he views it. When we express our dependence upon him, when we express our love to him, when we express our worship to him, it's all a fragrance in heaven. Whatever we may think of how well we can pray or or these kind of things, it's a fragrance to him. 
a heavenly father receiving uh, this from us as, as his children. I think it's wonderful to think about our prayers in that way. And then you, uh, the angel, we're told in verses 3 and 4, uh, is given much incense, uh, again, to pour upon, uh, offer up with the prayers of the saints to God before the throne. And so here comes now the answer to the prayers of all of the saints throughout the ages. And so there is, this is going on, and all of this that is going on in the heavenly scene is a representation of a certain prayer. And what has been the prayer that has been uh, prayed probably billions of times by hundreds of millions of, script, uh, of Christians down through 2,000 years uh, of history, still being prayed to God every day all around the world, and it is the prayer, uh, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then there are the prayers, as we saw, in, uh, of the tribulation saints in chapter 6 and verse 10. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, true and holy, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And both prayers are, are closely knit in what it is that's being uh, asked for. God, when are you going to take charge of, of this uh, rebellion against you on the part of not only the, the devil, but on the part of mankind, and bring all of it uh, to an end? And you remember that the world at this point in time, as we're at this place in the Revelation, not only uh, are they guilty of considerable sin, as we'll see in coming chapters, but they've added the sin of now hunting down Christians and uh, murdering them, uh, killing them for simply being uh, Christians. And the whole world is going to be un unified in seeking the death of Christians. These are prayers that God's righteousness will one day prevail over all of the earth. And so here, uh, this importance of prayer and how it's viewed from, uh, from the vantage point of heaven. Not one single prayer, and certainly not one, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, has been lost by God, has been ignored by God. Every time we have prayed that line, it is being stored in heaven, and it will one day be poured out in heaven as a sacrifice to God and a fragrance to Him as He rises up then to answer that prayer in the only way that it can happen, as it's described here in, in, in the Revelation. And, and, and so uh, they have, all of those prayers have been kept for the day in which they uh, are going uh, to uh, be, uh, be answered. And our prayers for justice in this life, they may not be answered until we're in heaven, but they will be answered. Now, throughout human history, people have wrestled with this, uh, the idea of the existence of God in the light of pain and suffering 
in, in the world. And so they conclude that suffering in the world must mean one of two things concerning God. It must reveal Him to be either loving but not all-powerful or to be all-powerful uh, but not loving. And because of the continued existence of evil and suffering uh, in, uh, in the world, it proves that an, a loving, all-powerful God, such as the Bible describes, cannot be uh, true. If He were truly loving, He'd bring an immediate end to all suffering, and because He doesn't, it must mean that He's not powerful enough to do it. And if He's all-powerful but He fails to bring an immediate end to suffering, it must mean that He's not loving. And of course, this is a false dichotomy, as if these are the only two things that are in play, or the only two uh, things that could be true uh, 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 about uh, God. The Bible does teach that God is both loving and all-powerful, and that one day He will bring all of this fallen mess to an end, and that one day all of it will give way to a new heaven and a new earth completely untainted by sin, and as a result, untainted or unmarked by uh, suffering. And so often when you, when you talk with somebody uh, about this and you say, it isn't that God isn't going to do it, uh, he, it's that He hasn't done it yet but he will uh, uh, do it. And, some, and then oftentimes there'll be a response of scorn. Ah, yes, one day, someday. Isn't that convenient uh, for, uh, for God? And, and to which I will typically say, listen, I'm just giving you his answer. And it makes perfect sense to me. He is all-loving and he is all-powerful. And he's going to deal with suffering, and he's going to deal uh, with uh, the brokenness of this, this world, the evil, but he's going to do it in his time, and he's going to do it in his way. And it assumes that uh, when a person goes into that kind of dichotomy of an argument, it assumes that um, I know more than God, and that these must be his only two choices. But believe it or not, God knows more than any of us. You ever been in an argument with somebody or discussion? A discussion, we don't argue as Christians. We, but in a discussion with somebody over some kind of an issue or whatever it might be, and you walk away from it and you go, wow, they're right and I'm wrong. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a lifelong experience for us as human beings. And, and so the fact that I wouldn't possess a little bit of self-doubt as a human being to speak authoritatively about God and then to use that as a reason for rejecting Him doesn't make any sense to me. It's kind of like uh, during the NFL season, sitting at home, got your nachos and got a little soda over here or whatever, and, and you got the TV on and the stuffed chair and the heater's on in the room, the den or whatever, and, uh, and you're going to tell, uh, uh, as you're watching a football game, you're going to uh, talk about uh, what the quarterback should do. Absolutely no experience at being at a quarterback on a field like that. 
running for your life from 380-pound human beings that are like gazelles and want to destroy you and knock you out of the game. I mean, as if we know anything, but we're an authority in our parents' basement or God's basement uh, on, on life or upon what, what God is like. And so God is going to judge, and one day He's going to take care of it, but it will be His way, and it'll be in His time, because if you've ever had this experience in your life, in, in your relationship with God, you say, God, listen, and here's the, kind of the dichotomy, or the, the choices. So I've given this a lot of thought. And, uh, and it seems to me that you really got two choices in front of you. You can do this, you can do that. And it seems to me that this is by far the more excellent way here. So, listen, if I, if I carry any weight at all, and you're thinking, I think you ought to all go this way. And then what does God do? He ignores the prayer. He ignores it in the sense that he says no to it. That isn't to ignore it. He says no to it. And then what he proceeds to do in the situation, by the time he gets done doing it, uh, we are thankful that he didn't answer our prayer in the way that we wanted it answered because he proceeded to knock out three or four or five things all at the same time. That's the difference between God and us in thinking about anything, much less what it means to be God and how he should conduct himself. And so the angel takes the censer in verse 5, he fills it with fire from the altar. So it's a holy fire, and it gets thrown into the earth. Speaking about a, a holy wrath that is now being poured out, about to be uh, poured out. And the result upon the earth were noises and thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake, communicating to the world something very awesome is about to happen. And with this, then, the seven angels uh, holding the seven trumpets prepare to sound them. You notice the first trumpet is sounded, and then hail and fire mingled with blood are thrown to the earth. So perhaps it's thunder and it's hail and it's lightning that not only start fires upon the earth, but also inflicts a, a loss of life as well. We're told that the result of this is going to be that a third of the trees are going to be burned up and all green grass on the earth is going to burn up. Imagine, and we don't have to imagine forest fires in California, but imagine a forest fire that is consuming one-third of the surface population of the earth. And that's what unfolds with this particular uh, trumpet. It is going to result in a worldwide ecological disaster beyond description. Now, you can't turn anywhere uh, on the news on television or pick it up in print or see it online or try and download a podcast somewhere except that somebody is talking to us today about global warming and climate change and we only have eight years until we're all doomed and uh and and, and this whole discussion that is uh, well i won't say it's a discussion i don't hear much discussion but this is the point that is 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 being made 
the world is not going to end because of global warming. And it's not going to end because of global warming, whether that global warming is man-made or whether it's just the natural cycle of temperature movement in the history of creation or the history of the world. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't take care of the world. It's been given to us as a stewardship, and we ought to be very, very good stewards uh, of it and, and to um, look after it because God has given that to us to do. So I'm not minimizing the importance of that. The amount of plastic that is floating on our oceans and, and, uh, and the different kinds of things that could readily be fixed. I mean, we ought, we ought to be taking care of, of these kind of things. The consumer kind of mentality that we have in the United States and the Western world, the whole world now, really, where we just take and there's so much uh, waste. We throw so much uh, away and, and we live for now uh, and no thought of are we going to leave any natural resources for the generations that are going to follow us. Or do we just use them all up on our own and they'll have to discover their own for whatever they want to have? Well, that's not a way to take care of the world. And that's not a way to, to live. And so we're to be good stewards of the earth. But it's important to realize that God views this world and this universe very different from many as they do on, on earth. He's not invested in it in the same way that some people can be. Because once this planet and this universe has served his purposes, following the tribulation period, the thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth after his second coming, God himself will bring this fallen world and universe to an end. Not man when he causes it to melt with a fervent heat and gives way to a new heaven and a new earth. Now, when we read about the destruction of these seal and trumpet and bowl uh, judgments, it's almost impossible not to think back upon, as we, again, we allow the uh, Old, uh, Old Testament to interpret the book of Revelation for us, to think back upon those ten plagues that God, uh, uh, judgments that he brought against the nation of Israel, uh, uh, the nation of Egypt, in order to secure uh, the redemption or the deliverance of his people from their bondage uh, there. It's important to understand that those ten plagues or judgments, they weren't meted out just haphazardly. There was a purpose behind all, all of it. Number one, to secure the release of his people. Number two, to judge Egypt for how they had treated uh, the children of Israel and and gotten to the point where they were killing their babies right after they they were being born. And then a third reason for the judgment was in order that Egypt would come to know that the God of the Bible, the Lord, is, is God, and he alone is God. See, each of those ten plagues were designed to openly uh, reveal to Egypt the powerlessness of their gods, and they worshipped so many gods, the powerlessness of their, their gods 
to protect them. To protect them from the judgments of God himself, the God uh, of Israel, in the hopes that they would repent and turn from their idolatry and, and come to follow uh, follow after him. For instance, they worship the Nile River as a, uh, a, a god. And so when God turns the Nile River into blood, the river being powerless to resist it, uh, it then God's superiority was revealed to the nation of Egypt and to the people there. And, and today, generally speaking, man's idolatry takes on kind of a different form, though it's still idolatry. There are two things that exist in all of the all. There is the creator and there is the creation. Those are the two categories. There are no other categories. And to worship anything other or anyone other than the creator is to engage in idolatry. It is to engage in the worship of the created thing, the worship of, of the creation. And so today, generally speaking, man's idolatry takes a different form, but it's still idolatry. And Paul describes the idolatry in his letter to the church at Rome, in Romans chapter 1, when he speaks of man worshiping and serving the creation rather than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. So, yes, we should be good stewards of the earth and all of that, but when mankind as a whole uh, becomes more concerned about the creation than the Creator, in fact, when it has a mountain of concern for the creation and zero concern for the Creator, then all bets are off. Because God will then do what He did with Egypt. He will readily then engage in the destruction of their idol, the destruction of, of the creation. And during the tribulation period, and in increasingly even today, if mankind willfully and completely ignores the message of creation, the supreme message of creation, and that is that there is a creator behind uh, all of this, and it chooses to worship the creation rather than the creator, then creation has failed in its supreme purpose. God will feel free to take away the blessings of this world one at a time by taking the forests and then taking the drinking water and then taking the stability of the sun and the moon and the stars in order to regain the attention of the world. That there is a creator behind the creation. And if they will not recognize his hand as creator, then perhaps they will recognize his hand as judge. You notice too that in this entire section here in chapter 8, that there's a third of the trees that are burned. Not all of the trees. And what that tells us is that God's judgment, as He's moving progressively through the judgments, <clears throat> these judgments are measured. Uh, they're not just wild, random kind of things that are going on. Uh, these, these are measured and restrained judgments. And God is being restrained in His judgment 
in, in pouring these things out. In other words, as bad as it is when it happens, it's not as bad as it, it could be. Why? Because God is still trying uh, to, uh, not interested in destroying the world. He's still trying to get the attention of the world, even at this dark moment in the tribulation period, and still giving men and women uh, opportunity and space to repent. The second trumpet in verses 8 and 9 John looks at it and he tries to describe it as something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. When he says, and he says this repeatedly, when he says it's something like, it means it, it's like something he's never seen before. And the best way that he can describe it is that, you know, something is, is, is coming out of the skies. It's like a burning fire and, and it hit the seas. And and that's the closest thing that he could get to, to describing it. Of course, it sounds very, very much like an asteroid hitting the earth. The result is given to us. A third of the sea becomes blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea die. And a third of the ships were destroyed. I don't know if you know that this. I didn't until I looked it up. But every year, the earth is hit by about uh, 6,100 meteors that are big enough to reach the, the surface uh, of the earth, to hit the ground. It happens 17 times every single day on the earth. Because uh, human population is very concentrated on the, on the earth as a whole, most of them come and hit the ground and nobody knows anything uh, about them at all. Uh, scientists, uh, NASA scientists, they estimate that about 48 and a half tons uh, of uh, meteor material falls on the earth every single day. Every single day. It, but it's burned up in the atmosphere before it ever reaches, uh, reaches the earth. About once a year, an, an automobile-sized aster, asteroid uh, hits the earth's atmosphere, creates this great flame within the sky, and everybody notices something like that. And about every 2,000 years or so, uh, a meteor the size of a football field uh, hits the earth, and it, it, then it causes tremendous damage a, as a result. And all has, God has to do in terms of this world is to just lift His protection uh, and say to the world at this point in, in time during the tribulation period, you want an orderly universe. I've supplied it to you. But you want to rebel against the moral and spiritual order that I call for. And now the day has come when you cannot have it both ways. You must choose order in both realms, or I will make the creation what you have made of my moral and spiritual law. I will turn it into chaos. You have done to my law uh, what you have done to it, and then now I will do with the, the, the physical uh, order of the, the sun, the moon, and the stars. The third trumpet in verses 10 and 11, a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, so similar to the second uh, trumpet, only larger in its size. Uh, a third of the rivers, uh, uh, as it falls on it, and uh, fell on the springs of water in the world as well. Uh, the second trumpet affected the sea, the salt water, uh, supply in the world. This trumpet affects uh, the freshwater sources in the world. It's named Wormwood 
uh, and for the effect that it's going to have upon the freshwater sources in, in the world. Wormwood is a very, very bitter plant, and uh, so it's going to take a third of the freshwater sources in the world and make them bitter and undrinkable, even, even toxic. And, uh, and, and so this is uh, w what will happen here in, in making water even scarcer uh, on top of, uh, of droughts that are going on uh, as well as a part of the judgments. And then the fourth trumpet in verse 12, a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. And a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And so this judgment again upon the order within the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then John looked up in uh, verse 13. He saw an angel flying through the midst of heaven with a message for the earth. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. You think this is as bad as it can get? You haven't seen anything yet. And when we get into chapter 9, uh, uh, the world is going to become a literal hell on uh, earth. And so the warning uh, is coming. And again, the warning in order to prompt people to look up and say, uh, listen, if he's got three more coming this way, I think we ought to cry uncle and, uh, and confess to the fact that we're in way over our, our head here. In chapter 8, of, of the revelation. To me, what you have uh, on full display is the folly of man attempting to fight with God, convinced that he or she has any hope of winning. And that's what's being attempted here in, in this chapter. Not only will we never win a fight or a war with uh, God, all we will ever accomplish in fighting against him and warring against him is to force him to then escalate his chastening and his judgments. We will not win. You will not win against God. Collectively, all seven or nine billion of us we will not win against God. There is zero hope for that. He is going to win. And the only thing that is in play is what side of Him am I going to be on when He wins? And the solution to any conflict with God is always to repent and to surrender. And it's certainly the case related to salvation. There is no way I'm going to win against God. There is, my rebellion is going to be brought to an end. And He will bring it to an end. And then it will be brought to an end with one of two destinations in terms of human being, it will be brought to an end in a person's life by them either being delivered into the glory of heaven or into an eternal judgment in hell, separated from God and all that He is for eternity. But He wins. He wins. 
And, and, and we have no chance of winning against them. In our own individual battles against God, I, I know I'm just speaking so foreignly to any of us that attend this church. But have you ever fought with God? And, and again, you want it to go a certain way. You want it to be this, and you're resisting, and you're fighting against it, and this is how I want it, and all. And then what does he do? He ratchets it up. He escalates, he escalates, he escalates until he wins. And then we look at it and we say, I'm so glad you won. This is way better than anything that I had in mind. And so it's the folly of thinking that I can win in a fight with God, but then it's the folly of fighting a God like this, who has already shown his heart to mankind in the sending of his Son to die on that awful cross as a full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can be forgiven of our sins, so that we can end our war against God, and anyone who isn't saved is living a war against God, and then enter into a personal relationship with God and enter into His family. And, and He has taken and He has put all of his chips out there, if you'll excuse a gambling illustration. You, we don't have to guess what his heart is toward us one bit. We don't have to guess what he will do to us if we surrender one bit. He's already made it clear. There is no risk in the surrender. And so the folly of thinking, I can win against him, win in a war against him, and then the folly of, of thinking that anyone would ever want to win against him when always what he does is best. When he wins in our lives, we win. Always. Always. And that's the point... That's the point he's trying to get through to the world at this time. And his patience and his long-suffering and his heart for the souls of men and women is on full display through its in the entirety. But some people need the heat turned way up to turn to him. I'm getting a name. Wait a second. Just sit right there. You. So we all know it's kind of different for all of us. And so here is this, the solution here. And the solution for them was, if you're not a Christian here today, the solution for them, the solution for you, is to cut your losses. How much more do you have to be beaten up emotionally, physically, um, mentally, by fighting against His commandments? I mean, you're already seeing it way before there are other judgments. You're already seeing the folly, the mess that we make of our lives in fighting the goodness of, his, com of his, his commandments. And so today is the day to be saved. And this is the God the, whose family you're going to be saved into. And if you've never trusted in Christ for that salvation, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. And they would love to pray with you to begin the relationship with God that you've been created for. 
and a relationship that will go on forever and ever and ever. And it's all free, and it's all there for the asking. If any of you need prayer for anything this morning, these same men and women would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer.